2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. If you'd like to follow along, you can find it printed on page 6 of your bulletin. These are the last words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene de 2 Samuel 23, 1 al 7. Estas son las últimas palabras de David. Oráculo de David, hijo de Isaí, dulce cantor de Israel, hombre exaltado por el Altísimo y ungido por el Dios de Jacob. El Espíritu del Señor habló por medio de mí, puso sus palabras en mi lengua. El Dios de Israel habló. La roca de Israel me dijo, el que gobierne a la gente con justicia, el que gobierne en el temor de Dios, será como la luz de la aurora en un amanecer sin nubes, que tras la lluvia resplandece pero que para que brote la hierba en la tierra. Dios ha establecido mi casa, ha hecho conmigo un pacto eterno, bien reglamentado y seguro. Dios hará que brote mi salvación y que se cumpla todo mi deseo. Pero los malvados son como espinos que se desechan, nadie los toca con la mano, se recogen con un hierro o con una lanza y ahí el fuego los consume. Thank you, brothers. Okay, at long last, we are today concluding our study of the life of David. Let's take a look one last time. And first, let's pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, we've already been given a taste of your presence, of your grace. But now we're asking for an outpouring of your spirit through your word. God, you know I feel weak, but I pray according to your promise that your power would be made perfect in my weakness. For the good of your people, for the glory of your name, come Lord Jesus, we're listening. In Christ's name, amen. Ludwig van Beethoven, the great German composer, as you may know, had become deaf at the end of his life. And according to reports, these were the last words of his life. 
I will hear in heaven. Sometimes last words are deep and deeply personal. But actually, some say those words perhaps were not Beethoven's last words at all. There are conflicting reports. Some say that after some publisher brought the composer 12 bottles of wine bedside, Beethoven's actual final words were, pity, pity, too late. Sometimes last words are humorous. Or they can be short but profound. These were the last words of Bob Marley, money can't buy life. Last words are often touching. John Wayne evidently turned to his wife and said, of course I know who you are. You were my girl. I love you. Oftentimes, last words are words of hope and faith. Blues singer Bessie Smith died saying, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. Of course, it's important not to glamorize last words. Not everyone's circumstances at death are exactly the same after all. But sometimes they are revealing. Sometimes they speak to what's in your heart. When all is said and done, what matters most to you? What might your last words be? Today's passage contains the last words of King David. It's a poem. In fact, it's a divinely inspired oracle. God speaking through his prophet King David one last time. David was 70 years old at this time when he composed and shared this with the people of Israel as his final legacy. These words, they sort of give us a snapshot into life lessons that David learned. They reveal what he valued most on the precipice of death, looking back upon his life, what was most important to him. So as the life of David comes to a close, how does David himself sum it all up? Well, he communicates four truths. Four truths. Number one, God changes lives. God changes lives. David's words open with a few phrases that describe his life. As verse 1 reads, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. David speaks of being anointed as king, clearly a major element in his story. He also names himself as one of Israel's chief songwriters. We have many of his songs of faith, his prayers, and his laments recorded in the book of Psalms. But see, he's not just reading off his resume here. Notice 
out a couple points. He points to God as the source of his life. As one commentator observes, David describes himself not in terms of human achievements, but in relation to his God. David is very clear that all he is and all that he has is from God. If at some later point you were to look back upon the totality of your life story, or even if you were to stop today and look back upon your life up to this point, would you only list your personal human achievements or even only your human relationships, or would you talk about your life in relation to God? Where does God figure into your story? As a major character? As a decorative religious prop? Or as a dominant force in the plot of your life? As David sums up his story in these few words, he points out how God changed his life. We see this in a few clues. He describes himself as David, son of Jesse, which of course reminds us of David's humble origins. You might remember Jesse had seven boys. and David was the youngest, the runt of the family, forgotten when it came time for Samuel, the priest, to come and choose the next king, overlooked, not even invited to draft night itself. Culturally speaking, David was the unlikeliest choice as king, but God totally redirected the trajectory of David's life. From being a a, a totally unknown shepherd of sheep to being the greatest shepherd king of God's people. And in a stroke of poetic genius, David identifies himself as the anointed, the king of the God of who? Jacob. Who's Jacob? Jacob's story is an interesting story. He was the son, no, rather the grandson of Abraham. Jacob, you know, was a deceiver. He would step on and step over anyone, even including his twin brother Esau, just to get ahead. Until Jacob met God. Until God humbled him with sweet, sweet mercy. As a symbol of Jacob's transformation, God actually gave Jacob a new name, Israel, after whom, of course, the whole people of God were subsequently named. This, Jacob, this is who David appeals to to sum up his own story. As one commentator explained so helpfully, the God of Jacob is the one who transforms twisted human material. So David thinks of himself as one in need of transformation. In other words, David knows his story is a story of change. He knows it's not a natural story, but a a, a supernatural story. That God was the one who made him 
made him into a man of deep, rich communion with God. God was the one who made him a courageous warrior in the face of opposition and even death. God was the one that made him a wise and a humble king. David knows his sin, his pride, his failings, but God had transformed David into a loyal friend of Jonathan's, into a a forgiver of enemies like Saul. God had made him into a man of mercy, a man of his word, a man of kindness as seen in his treatment of Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. David was a deeply flawed sinner, but when he fell, he repented with the softest of hearts. He confessed his sin. He clung to God's mercy because God changed his life. And all this was to God's credit. David knew it so. God had changed him. This invites us to think about our own stories, doesn't it? Has God changed your life? Last week I was meeting with someone who was looking into becoming a a member of our church. And part of that conversation, as always, entails just getting to know a person's faith story, their journey. So we were talking a little bit about their testimony, about their family, about different spiritual turning points in college and in different parts of their life. And I was reminded again just how important it is to reflect on our testimonies, not once in a while, but on a regular basis, to keep in touch with the changing grace of God in your life, to review it, to be humbled by it, to be overjoyed by it, to be encouraged, especially in those ways that you today might feel blind to the inner workings of God. Is he present? Is he moving? To be reminded again and again that God works in mysterious ways. He has in the past. Why would he not also in the future? Have you thought about your testimony lately? Whether your story of coming to faith in Christ or maybe your ongoing story of seeking God and maybe learning about him for the first time. How God has changed you. How God is changing you from a Jacob into an Israel. From a natural man named David into a king named David endowed by the grace of God. Dear friends, today remember your testimony. God changes lives. The second truth David communicates is righteous kings are life-giving. Righteous kings are life-giving. In verses 3 and 4, David is offering guidance to Israel's future kings. Listen to what he says. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. A true king, David reminds us, rules in the fear of God. It doesn't mean terrified of God. It means a person leading with humility, with a sense of answerability to God. 
the king of all kings. A true king also, David says, rules in righteousness. And that means, of course, ruling with integrity and equity. But most of all, in the Old Testament, the king's righteousness is closely tied to his responsibility to the poor and the vulnerable. Here's how Psalm 72 describes the righteousness of a true king. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. He will take pity on the weak and the needy. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Those words were written by Solomon, David's son, and scholars believe he probably wrote that psalm reflecting on this David's last words. When a king is attentive to people's vulnerability, and when he serves with humility, what's the result? David tells us, a kingdom of life. Such a king is like a life-generating light, like the rays of the sun at dawn with, with no clouds to obscure or shadow its brightness. After a, a, a cold and dark night, in this fallen world, the king establishes a kingdom of, of warmth, of comfort, of hope, of light. And the king is like rain, David says, refreshing showers that make grass sprout from the earth. Recently, I planted some grass seeds in my lawn and places where patches of the lawn had died, much to my discouragement. But days passed by. I was watching for signs of life. Days passed by, but found none. And I started to wonder, as you can imagine, if something had gone wrong. And then we had one of those recent downpours, those rains. And then I checked again, and guess what I found? A little tiny shoots of new grass starting to poke up out of the ground. New life, right? And that's what the true king is like. He causes everyone in his kingdom to flourish. Things that look dead suddenly come to life. People that seem lifeless or are lifeless, emotionally lifeless, relationally lifeless, spiritually lifeless, financially lifeless. Maybe that describes some of you today. Lifeless people are suddenly alive. Because of the light and the life of the king. David knew this principle personally. He had ruled with righteousness and humility, and Israel flourished under his reign. But he had also screwed up badly at different points. He ruled with pride and fear and self-centeredness. 
which made him at times not a life-giving king, but a life-taking king, which is what we become when we're given power apart from God, when we rule in the spheres of our life without humility, a sense of answerability before God, and a concern for human vulnerability. David was as close to a true king as Israel had ever known. But understandably, the prophets looked forward to to another, another king, an even better one. For instance, Isaiah chapter 11 promised that a king would come, one from the family of David. A king who would delight in the fear of the Lord, it says. A king who would rule with righteousness, who would rule on behalf of the poor and needy with justice. All this in Isaiah 11, reflecting probably here on this passage. Who did that perfect king, that promised king, turn out to be? Why, Jesus, of course. Because his kingdom is a life-giving kingdom. You know, one where you don't have to give yourself life. As we all feel pressure to do, to come up with the resources to fix yourself within yourself. No, no, you don't have to give yourself life. Jesus gives life to the spiritually dead, to the helpless. He cares for the vulnerable, those who are on emotional or financial life support. His is a kingdom where the highest lift up the lowest, where the strongest take care of the weakest, where those with power spend their power on those who have none. Because this kingdom is patterned after the very life, indeed the cross of the king himself. And so, of course, if the spirit of King Jesus lives in you, if you're a citizen of this kingdom, the question for you today is, does this describe your life? In whatever sphere of life you're in as a parent or as a neighbor or as a worker, a friend, are you living with humility and a concern for human vulnerability like your king Jesus, because the righteous king is life-giving. Thirdly, God transforms lives. He changes lives. Righteous kings are life-giving. And third, God is faithful. God is faithful, says David on his deathbed. You notice in verse 5, David speaks of the everlasting covenant that God made with him and his household. David's talking about the promise that God made. We read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This grand promise to raise up someone, someone from David's own family to establish a kingdom that would endure forever. Just spoke about that briefly a moment ago. 
the Old Testament prophets longed for the appearance of this king. They called him the Messiah, the anointed one. This, of course, pointed forward to the person of Jesus, King Jesus. It's why the New Testament repeatedly points out that Jesus was a descendant of David's. It's why Jesus was repeatedly called the Son of David, one of the chief titles that he was given all throughout the New Testament scriptures. Jesus was the greater David, the promised one. And the fulfillment of this covenant promise that David is speaking about would come long after David had passed 1,000 years to be exact. But in his old age, David had seen enough of God's character proven throughout his lifetime to know he could bank on that promise being fulfilled. He knew enough of God's track record to describe this covenant, this promise in verse 5, as one arranged and secured in every part, which is an ancient legal way of saying, sign, sealed, and delivered, guaranteed. You see, David knew this, God keeps his promises. God is faithful. Can you say along with David that God has been faithful to his promises? Over the weekend, really for the past couple of weeks, Paula and I have been sort of sorting through all of our Junk. We, 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 call, we use a sophisticated word, purging, but what that really means is throwing away junk. That's what we're doing right now, and that means just going through closets and boxes and places where you just have all kinds of stuff that if you're honest with yourself, maybe you don't need. And in this process, it's really been a trip down memory lane because I'm a pack rat, so it's all there. All the memories are there. That means sifting through papers, pictures from our wedding, from my childhood, uh, little memories from my college days, from high school. I even found a, a journal that I kept, a journal from junior high. Those were tough days. I didn't dare open it. Not yet. <laughs> sifting through papers, finding medical bills from when Jeremiah, our son, was, was in the NICU, the first year of his life together with us. I found myself quietly saying, even testifying in the basement with each of these memories, wow, God has been good. God has kept his promises to me. He hasn't broken a, a single one yet to forgive my sins, to redeem my mistakes. And trust me, as I was flipping through my high school stuff, I was reminded of many of those. He hasn't broken a single one yet, his promise to guide my steps, to protect me from ultimate harm, to give me strength when I'm weak, to be with me always, 
to make me more like Jesus, can you too testify today, God has been faithful to me. Even through seasons of suffering, even in stretches of darkness, when I felt like I was walking blindly, but I know he was holding me by my right hand. God has been faithful to me. And we know that this was the testimony of David. It shows up here briefly, but it really was the testimony of his life throughout his life. We know this because when you flip through the different psalms, these prayers and songs that he wrote about the life of faith, just how often the faithfulness of God was a theme, a dominant theme. For instance, in Psalm 36, and then again in Psalm 57, and then again in Psalm 108, with almost identical language, David singing these words, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, for great is your love reaching the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. David was always overcome with thanksgiving because of God's commitment, his unshakable commitment to him. Whenever David witnessed God keeping his promises, he would erupt in singing, and maybe you have too. Maybe you should. When you witness God's forgiveness of your sins once again, or you witness God providing just what you need, and you can't just help but to sing, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord un to me. God is faithful. God is faithful. He gives grace for righteous kings to give life, and he's changing life and lives. But fourthly and lastly to close, the stakes are high. Did you notice how David's last words, well, did you notice how the last words of David's last words were all about judgment? Look at verses 6 and 7. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a, of a spear. They're burned up where they lie. David is clearly using vivid imagery, thorns, to describe judgment for those who oppose God or forget God or who have no fear of God, which is all of us by nature. Someone maybe says, what a morbid 
guy. Right? Last words. Last words, and this is where you end, huh? This is how you finish. You know, how depressing. How, how about something a little more uplifting? David. Listen, David is making people, making you and me sober about ultimate things. David isn't being needlessly negative. He's being real. Like a father offering a final word of warning of love to his kids for their good. Because there are real consequences, David reminds us, to the lives that we live and the choices that we make. Remember, this is a guy who had been to death row and back. David knew about evil in his own life. He knows about the potential for evil in ours, and yet he's also one who's experienced the mercy of God for that very evil. He's experienced hope. He's experienced the promise of God's kindness, both in his present life and in the life that he knew would come. Because even here, in light of this everlasting covenant, in light of the faithfulness of God, in light of this character of a God who changes lives, David knew that even this too must be understood as good news, the good news of the coming gospel. Born by his descendant, his offspring who would come and reign, As king. You see, because Jesus, though he was a king of righteousness, perfect righteousness, he was treated like an evil man. He was cast aside, forsaken, not only by his followers and his friends, but in judgment, forsaken by his heavenly father. He wasn't just treated like thorns, but a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And the shaft of a spear was thrust in his side, and his hands and feet impaled by iron, iron nails. And although he's the author of life, the source of living water itself, his soul became in judgment eternally parched, lifeless. Which is why he cried on the cross, I thirst. And as he hung there in crucifixion, his soul was burned by the pain of hell as he bore the punishment for all our evil combined. But then he rose again like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Risen again because he had fully paid the price for all the sin and evil of our hearts. 
Because he had accomplished the redemption, the salvation of all those who would put their trust in him. Do you see what is at stake, dear friends? Not only our sober understanding of judgment, but what's also at stake is our knowledge of God's love. Because it's only when you understand the judgment of God that you see the extent to which Christ was willing to go to have you. To rescue you. To suffer for you. To suffer what you and I deserve. And yet in love as a free gift. What he suffered in our place. What's at stake here is not only your knowledge of the judgment of God, but your rich knowledge of the love of God. Do you know his love today? These, friends, are words that can fill our lives with meaning. The very life of God. These words aren't just about David's life, you know, these words are about your life and mine. Even in the face of death, as David faced death, do you want to know life like David knew it? Do you want life like the greater David, Jesus, promises to give it? And he'll give it to you in full, life abundant, life in the grace of God. Oh, dear friends, will you receive it from him today? Let's pray. Give us new life, whether for the first time or refreshed and renewed by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. Jesus, I